No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. For this special show, our here and gone storytellers' modern day true tales were inspired by Queen's history from the archives of the Greater Astoria Historical Society. First up, story partners Lakshmi Gandhi and Dan Jessup swap stories about the culture of mutual agitation that bonds Mets fans, and a midlife move to Astoria blocks away from where inventor Chester Carlson created the world's first photocopy. Visit KnowYouTellIt.com to learn more about how the word Astoria was on the first page of the Information Age and the other Queen's history highlights that inspired these stories. I would like to invite up our first set of storytellers. Please give a lovely round of applause to Lakshmi Gandhi and Dan Jessup. Before Dan reads, we always like to have a Q&A with our writers so that you get a chance to hear a little bit from them, get a sense of their voice and personality before you hear their story told. So this is Lakshmi Gandhi. She is a freelance writer and journalist who lives in Queens in Jackson Heights. And I'm gonna beat tonight's themes of Here and Gone and Queens to death, okay? So I've got, a, these are my son's snack containers for school. I'm really, I classed it up for you. Um, so I'd like, let's begin with the Here and Gone questions. You put the question and hand it to me. Nice, that's good. Name something or someone that is gone that you wish were still here. Oh, that's a heavy one to start. <laughs> it, it, it can, yeah. <laughs> it is, if, if you make it that way. It's up to you, it's your choice. Sure. Um, I'm going to make it light. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Try. Sure. I miss the show The West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's one that I, I did not, I've saw, seen a few episodes, but I feel like I gotta go back and binge it because mm -hmm. people whose opinions I trust say it's like one of the best things ever. Mm -hmm. All right, now select a Queens question, please. What's your favorite outdoor spot in Queens? Oh, so I obviously, I really like going to the US Open, so the mm -hmm. USTA, the Billie Jean Center. It's really fun. Yes. But the Arch, the Arthur Ashe Stadium? Yes. yes. But the Billy G, but the, they've also called it. Yes. yes. I don't know the official name, but one, <laughs> one, of, the, one of the stadiums is a Billy Jean and one is an Arthur Ashe. Amazing. Oh, yes. That is a good outdoor space. Yes. All right. Thank you. And now, here is Two Continents and a Whole New Ball Game, written by Lakshmi Gandhi and performed by Dan Jessup. Two continents and a whole new ballgame. There's a choice that every immigrant family that arrives in New York has to make that will change the trajectory of their lives forever. It's the kind of decision that is especially important when it comes to predicting the health, wellness, and potential heartbreaks that the subsequent generations will face in the years to come. I am, of course, speaking of the choice to become a fan of Queen's own New York Mets. 
<laughs> Sports fandom, uh, and in particular baseball fandom, is a peculiar thing in the best of times. Imagine voluntarily joining a huge and disparate group of people from all ages and backgrounds, and the only thing you have in common is that you regularly invest time and effort and sometimes even money in watching a group of mostly young men run around a diamond-shaped box on a field. <laughs> in the case of my own family, our journey began on October 17, 1970, when a determined and eager 20-something man arrived in Queens from India with a college degree, an interesting relationship to English, and about $8 to his name. Like so many who left India in the 70s, there was a lot of sadness and guilt. Their parents and ancestors had worked so hard to break the shackles of colonialism only to see so many of their children drift away. But despite the natural challenges that came with such a move, he took to New York immediately. And it was immediately clear to everyone in his orbit that he'd never return to India to live again. When imagining what it was like to be a newly minted American sports fan, it's important to remember just how cool the Mets were in 1970. <laughs> they were winners. <laughs> they were the reigning champions. They were the perfect fit for newcomers who wanted to belong. There was no reason to think they wouldn't be winners and champions again. Was there? <laughs> Looking back from the comfortable distance of a half a century, some stories of my father's first years in the United States are legitimately funny now. The jobs at the elevator company, the one at the long-defunct department store Corvettes in Flushing, where he literally sold toasters. The times, he says, when you'd see another South Asian person, it was always a man in those days, or sometimes, sometimes, a married couple walking down the street, and they'd always stop, thrilled, to see another person like them that they could talk to. This sounds remarkable years later. It was one of the few times in a South Asian context where things like country of origin, religion, region, language, caste, and any of the innumerable ways South Asians unnecessarily divide themselves didn't seem to matter at all. So many uncles and aunties from that generation those midnight's children defined by colonization and tumult and migration and the aftermath of the 1965 Immigration Act have these kinds of stories to tell. And it's a story, it's a story that still feels bright and hopeful today, still 53 years later, that I'm telling it to you now. And while this particular story has a very South Asian flavor, it's still very Queens. It's still all part of those stories of reinvention and rebuilding that have been at the heart of the New York experience from the beginning, whether it is from immigration or the Great Migration or the many other movements, life-changing, traumatic, ambition-fueled, and everything in between that have always brought people here, the most diverse borough. Now, you are probably also wondering what this all has to do with baseball. <clears throat> uh, a game that, until recent tweaks, like the introduction of the much-fussed-over pitch clock and weird pandemic-era rules like the extra innings base runner, 
often doesn't feel very creative or modern or flexible at all. Or the Mets, a team best known for being bumbling and awkward at the worst of times and exhilaratingly maddening at the best of them. It's important to remember, though, that in, the, that in 1970, the Mets and the Jets, who we won't get into here because that's a whole other kettle of fish, uh, were both on the up and up. Oh, we were so innocent then. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout my father's early years in the US, there were always the Mets, who, though they didn't repeat that championship run, would often come pretty close. They somewhat amazingly won the, the National League pennant in 1973, making it all the way to the World Series before falling short to Reggie Jackson and the rest of the Oakland A's in Game 7. The pitching, led by future Hall of Famer Tom Seaver, often dazzled. I mean, an older Willie Mays was around. I mean, if nothing else, there were a lot of things to talk about. For a bunch of mostly single immigrants, who mostly didn't drink alcohol and had a bunch of culturally sanctioned dietary restrictions to boot, diving headfirst into the wide world of sports offered a lifeline to navigating the equally complicated realms of small talk and workplace politics. Alas, none of that heady optimism and spunky enthusiasm from these new groups of fans was meant to last. Several years after my father's arrival in Queens, he returned to his hometown, the thriving city of Bangalore, to find a bride. He met and married my mother within a week. And after getting both a passport and a birth certificate, arrived in New York City roughly five months later. Indeed, by the time my mother landed in Queens in 1978, a little bit over seven and a half years after my father's arrival, the Mets were abysmal, <laughs> she recalled. You see, she had plenty of time to assess. It took me about a month or so to get it, my mother says now. Like many new college-educated brides back then, she yearned to work. But visa restrictions prevented that, leading her to wander around their Hilliard Street apartment, a studio for two people, uh, and their neighborhood without much to do, except to watch baseball. I very carefully use the word baseball and not the Mets here because she somewhat quickly determined that the Mets, a team that by then had traded away its stars and slashed payroll, generally operated with an air of diffidence. Like a true new American, she wanted to be a winner. You see, the Mets were so pathetic <laughs> and sad, her words, <laughs> that back then, a newcomer joining that fandom just didn't make sense, especially for someone with a lot of energy and time and nowhere to spend it. Much to my father's chagrin, supporting a winner in 1978 meant falling head over, head over heels for, wait for it. <laughs> the Yankees. <clears throat> uh, Reggie Jackson, <clears throat> uh, yes, that same dude who ruined the Mets World Series just a few years before. He was a favorite. <clears throat> so was catcher Thurman Munson, the team's captain. 
Luckily, adopting a new sport can feel like a new job. And like any new job, there is a weird learning curve. But there was also the opportunity that following a team, especially a team that is either exceptionally good or exceptionally bad, can offer a newcomer to its orbit. The first is the thrill of new fandom and all the little tasks that go with it. The first task is probably the most obvious one, the joy of learning what is quite literally a whole new ballgame. Discovering more about each player's quirks and frustrations, the twiddling of bats and gloves, uh, making up what is now known as fan fiction about which players were friends based on where they sat on the bench. <laughs> The occasional tabloid mentions that follow any professional sports team. If you pretend hard enough, you might even feel like you know them, which is a particularly valuable feeling for the lost and the lonely. It's also valuable for the times when you long for friends and something to talk about with said friends. But making friends, real and imagined, is often a pathway to heartbreak, both the frivolous, temporary kind and the real, breathtakingly sad kind. My mother and all of New York and the baseball world at large would experience a crushing loss one drizzly and foggy day in August when the news broke on the radio that catcher Thurman Munson, the team captain she so admired, had died in a plane crash in Ohio while he was practicing takeoffs and landings on his private jet. Stunned and alone, and not sure how to process this shattering news, my mother did the only thing she could think of. She called my dad at work. <laughs> they both still talk about that call now, how my dad originally wondered what was wrong. Did something happen thousands of miles away with the parents and siblings they had left behind? <clears throat> no, she said, but they did lose a friend in a way. They lost the captain of her new team. And his wife lost her husband and his children, a father. Fortunately, the sadness of our family's fandom never reached that level of sadness and tragedy again. And perhaps inevitably, our family began inching towards the Mets again, especially as they approached their heyday in the 1980s and became the toast of the town once again. The Mets were there for us as we weathered our own tragedies and losses. There was the time after we lost, after the loss of my grandparents, when my father returned to grieve and sort things out, when we all got on a three-way call, me in college, my brother and mom in Long Island, and my dad in India, as we all briefly chatted about the 1999 playoffs with the game on in the background. It was a tiny respite from an overwhelmingly sad time. Being a Mets fan in Queens, after all, means there is always someone nearby you can vent to or nod at or briefly pause by as you pass their stores in the hopes you'll catch the score on the radio or television. Even if you aren't the type to randomly chit-chat with strangers, and let's be real, uh, no one in my family has ever been good at that, <clears throat> uh, there was a comfort in knowing that whatever anyone else thinks of you or your country of birth or how you got here, nothing will mutually agitate you more than the Mets. <laughs> Like many family heirlooms, this legacy is an absolutely weird one to pass along to your children and then grandchildren. And in this case, it's a legacy that was fully embraced by this young couple's 
equally weird children. There are some things that immigrant parents often struggle with. Guiding your child as they navigate the social politics of middle school, for example. Or teachers that can't pronounce your name. Dating. But a crucial part of growing up is learning that you can love something and invest in it and long for it to be better, and it will never, ever change. Just like the Mets. <laughs> because the Mets, like Queens, like New York City at large, heck, like the United States of America as a whole, are easy to love. The trick, and this is very important, is to never count on them fully, absolutely, and completely loving you back. <laughs> and nothing prepares you more for navigating adulthood in New York like that. Like literally 35th and Broad? I, I, Should we give me your address and sure, apartment sure. number? You're all welcome after the show. Come on by. I, I am 35th Street and Broadway. Yeah, so we're I keeping mean, it very local. It's within a three minute walk. Exactly. Maybe two. Yeah, maybe two. Um, all right, shall we start you? Let's, since the, I mean, the last one was, let's start with potentially heavy, the here and gone. I don't think Please. that was maybe that was the heaviest one she got. Oh, buckle up. Okay, <laughs> name a product or food item that has been discontinued that you wish was still here. Ooh, I'm gonna go Neckos. Yes. Necco wafers. Necco wafers. Yeah. The colorful, large, round disc yeah. candies. Yeah. The very powdery. Yeah. yeah. Too chalky, like Tom's. Very chalky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not because I really want any, um, but um, my mom was a fan of those. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the font. Like I'm seeing the font, and it's very mid-century, yeah. like 1950s, yeah. like right out of Mad Men. Yes. I get, I get that from yeah. you. I get that. <laughs> I, I think that's a great choice. Good. And now, um, a Queens, okay. a Queens question. I love it. What is your favorite cultural institution in Queens? Ooh, uh, I'll go to um, Socrates Park. Does that yeah. count? Yeah. Socrates Sculpture Socrates, Park. Socrates Sculpture, Sculpture Park, yeah. yeah. Both the park itself, how often it changes, the richness of that, but the location, like one of the best spots for a sunset here right. in, in Queens. You're on the water, yeah. and you can go every few months, and there's something different there, right? Always, yeah. It's a good it's spot. And the guy, James, I think his name is James, who works security and closes it out, yes. he has he's, he has the, the boomiest of booming voices. And so you know, when it's closing, the runner will walk around going, you got to leave, the park is closing. It's booming, and you think he's mad, but then you see him, he's got the brightest smile of anyone in New York. He's like, the best juxtaposition. He like came here to be an actor, uh, yes. and now he's projecting. Yes. He's living his best life. It's the best. you got to go there at sunset just to hear and experience him. Yeah, I yeah. See, these are gems we're being given. Gems. Um, and now, switching it up, please enjoy The Certainty of Here, written by Dan Jessup and performed by Lakshmi Gandhi. The Certainty of Here, July 16th, 2018. I'm sitting at the Astoria and grabbing a drink with the owner of the Airbnb where I'm staying. I'd arrived earlier that day from Chicago and was exploring Astoria as a possible landing spot for my upcoming move. 
see some apartments, walk the neighborhood, look for a sign that of all the places to be in New York, did I want to be here? As Airbnb Chris and I get to talking, the bartender overhears me reference Chicago and asks if I happen to know of a certain bar there where he used to work. I did. I think I'd been there the week before. Shortly after, we discovered that Airbnb Chris went to college with a friend of mine from middle school. Couple of good signs on day one. Nice work, Australia. <laughs> I check out apartments in and outside Australia in the days that follow, but something keeps pulling me back here. I like the mix of people, cuisines, and train lines, and also how many creatives are here. A main reason for my move is to resume a paused acting career. I eventually rent a place at 35th and Broadway, a two minute walk from where we are tonight. Turns out another two minutes past my place to 37th and Broadway is where one of those creatives, an inventor named Chester Carlson, <laughs> produced the first photocopy in 1938. A neighborhood known for its diversity is ironically the home of Xerox Technologies. <laughs> this nugget is not in the street easy bio for Astoria, but I take it as an inspiration that others have made a midlife move to Astoria and done great things. So while I get here 80 years too late for the good rents, I at least landed a spot with <laughs> ties to both the Midwest and the past. Good sign. Glad to be here. As I settle in, I imagine Chester and I each cranking away in our parallel Astorias. Him experimenting with zinc, glass, and electrostatic charge, me experimenting with different fonts for my resume. We're pretty much the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I start auditioning for any project I can across stage, screen, and voice, looking to build connections and get recent experience. I say yes to whoever will have me, which ends up ranging from fun short films to an NYU film class recreation of the Meyerowitz stories, playing Ben Stiller's role. For more than a year, I do what I can where I can enjoying getting to know my new home, but getting no traction on any theater projects. March 8th, 2020. I channel Chester. I make a photocopy in Astoria. <laughs> <laughs> I use the self-service kiosk at the FedEx Office Print and Ship Center on Steinway, copying pages of a play for an audition. That FedEx where I make my photocopy is a four minute walk from where Carlson made his. This audition was a final callback and potentially my first play since moving to the city. The audition goes fairly well, the production team seems great, and I'm happy to be in consideration again for a play. March 12, 2020. <laughs> 12 p.m. I receive an offer for the role with a plan to start rehearsals March 16th. I gladly accept. 3 p.m. <laughs> due to a massive paper jam in the world's photocopier. <laughs> the play, like many other things, is in limbo, and after a couple weeks of delays, the decision is made to indefinitely hold, with understandably no clue if it'll ever happen. In the scheme of all that's happened during this time, this play hiccup of course means nothing. Still, it's not cool. Everything pauses in all aspects of actor life, as well as in all aspects of my other career, in recruiting. With companies halting all hiring, people wanted a recruiter as much as they wanted an actor shaking their hands. 
So what's next with both of my careers halted and a city that I'm just getting to know closing down? WWCD. What would Chester do? <laughs> Chester did his early experiments in his kitchen. And since that was one of the few places I could go at the time, I started working out of mine. I offer Spanish tutoring via FaceTime to my friend's kids, who are suddenly out of school, and I start attending any Zoom seminar I can with casting directors and agents. Then my performance and career and corporate career converge as I team up with an events planning company to produce a virtual game show that organizations use to keep a level of social connection amongst their suddenly home-based employees. Live from my kitchen, I'm now facilitating debates amongst groups of lawyers, account executives, and engineers on what is the correct top five all-time ranking of music divas. <laughs> we end up doing nearly 200 of these events. Not the way I thought I'd be spending the bulk of my time in New York, but I'm very grateful and proud of what we built. And yes, Beyonce typically bests Mariah for number one on the top five list. It's really how you define diva. <laughs> With the game show, other virtual event hosting, and a whole lot of walking around Astoria, two years pass. I eventually start auditioning for film and stage projects again as they resume, though with limited experience and limited recent experience and limited productions going, traction is slow. March 20th, 2022. I'm getting ready for my first in-person audition since that day in 2020 when the play was halted. I find those same copied pages still lingering next to headshots in my portfolio. Grinning ho-hummily at a memory I hadn't thought of in quite a while, I put them aside to be recycled. As I take recycling down to the basement, sort it appropriately, and get back in the elevator. As I check my phone, there's a message from the production company of that play from 2020. They've gotten the green light to produce the show and are wondering, am I still available? almost exactly two years to the day and about 20 seconds after I tossed the pages. We set a time to reconnect. I immediately go down to the basement and retrieve those pages, since they must have some kind of power. We do the show and it goes great. A fun casting crew, great venue, nice response, and oh yeah, Steve Martin serves as the mentor of the show's playwright and attends opening night. <coughs> Spoiler alert, I don't get a chance to meet Steve as he's pretty much there and gone. But I still find some fun in the fact that he's involved and in the audience of the first show I'm part of in the city, a show that almost didn't happen. Appropriately, the play is titled Good Things Happen. Should I be inferring some kind of sign from this? That wouldn't be the last time I had an indirect blush from Steve Martin. <laughs> December 23rd, 2022. Delayed at LaGuardia, I end up chatting with a friendly couple and their cute daughter. To qualify cute, as our gate changed, she challenged me to a race to our next gate. <laughs> Turns out, her dad is a music producer for Only Murders in the Building, starring Steve Martin. <laughs> January 4th, 2023. I work on a commercial scoop, shoot as Ben Stiller's stand-in. I guess I have a new type. He's doing a Super Bowl spot for Pepsi, alongside Steve Martin. This leads to four days on set and many times when I've been physically close to my best friend, Steve. How, 
However, there's never a one-on-one -on -one opportunity where I can thank him for helping with the play or ask him what he thinks of the music of in his new show. <laughs> March 17th, 2023. Back in Astoria, an abnormally large crowd is gawking at a TV shoot taking place on Broadway, right around the corner from my apartment. The shoot is an episode of Only Murders in the Building, <laughs> with Steve and the entire cast walking with an eyeshot of where Chester made the only photocopy in the building. <laughs> and here tonight, in the back, is Steve. Just kidding. <laughs> what if he was here, though? That would be a cool sign, but wouldn't have the same certainty of making a decision. I'm very glad I moved to Astoria. I'm grateful for the people I've met, the moments I've shared, and the projects I've worked on, regardless of their scale or their degree of Ben Stillerness required. <laughs> I'm certain that gratefulness, and I recognize that those things I'm grateful for stem from making decisions much more than looking for signs. Move, take a shot at a random job posting, start experiments in your kitchen, whatever. I can't control the outcome, and I similarly can't control whether something is truly a sign. But I can control starting new moments, from the minute to the grandiose. I want to make more decisions because I can control here much more than I can control gone. I want to create as many here's as I can. Who knows what can happen? Some might even get a second chance. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.